And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon on this rotating sphere. You know, sometime in the next few weeks, we're going to have to do a show on this whole flat Earth thing. This is really bugging me. It's, it's, it's so bizarre. It's so extraordinary. It's perfect for the other side of midnight, which is where you have found yourself for the next three hours. Welcome one and all in all 190-some-odd countries. Uh, I shouldn't say odd. They're diverse countries all over this rotating globe. My guest tonight is, is really someone I wanted to talk to for a long time, particularly on the air, because um, we're going to talk about a man who is an enigma out of time. I, I really, you know, when I wrote the promo over on Blog Talk, I said, quoting James, no other figure in the 20th century should be named, who could be named, has been so badly maligned in popular media, scientific and medical circles or so shabbily mistreated by the powers that be in federal... Oh, interesting. Oh, interesting. Someone does not want us to do this show. So we will continue. We've just lost blog talk. But we have a backup. We have our own server. Obviously, Kinthea, we're going to have to post on the uh, Facebook and Twitter and other feeds that... Uh, we're going to be going with the server, so put up the server on Facebook and all the other social media so people can continue listening. Sorry, the folks on Blog Talk, you've obviously lost us because they don't want us to talk about uh, William, Wilhelm Reich. Isn't that interesting? But before we get to the main topic of this morning, let me, let me kind of refresh your memory, take you back. 60 tetrahedral years tonight, March 17th, 2018. 17 years, uh, I'm sorry, 60 years ago, uh, it was the launch of Vanguard One. Who amongst us in the audience remembers the launch of Vanguard One? Vanguard, as you may remember, was supposed to be the first U.S. satellite put into orbit as part of the International Geophysical Year. Well, in 1957, in October of 57, when the Russians, the Soviets back then, upstaged us and put Sputnik in orbit. There was a kind of a mad mania going on in the White House and the Pentagon and all that, and they wanted to look to see who was it who could put up the, the first U.S. satellite quickly in order to uh, take advantage of the interest in space and to basically get in the race with the Soviets. So at that time, there has been quietly going on at a subcontractor named Martin, the Martin Aircraft Company, either in Baltimore, under the Naval Research Laboratory, the building of the first U.S. scientific satellite, Vanguard, the Vanguard program. Vanguard first, at the, at the cutting edge and all that. Um, the Vanguard program was designed to be the U.S. first satellite in space, but because the Russians kind of pulled a fast one, it was supposed to be the second one. Well, in December of 1958, Eight. I'm sorry, 57. Um, the Naval Research Laboratory under the U.S. Navy tried to launch Vanguard 1. And the damn thing blew up on the pad. It raised a few feet. The engine quit. It fell back down. Hundreds of thousands of gallons of fuel burst into flame. It was, well, they called it Flopnik. That was how bad the PR was around the U.S. attempt to launch a first satellite. Well, they recycled the count as is known in the trade. And several months later, on the night of March 17th, 
Vanguard 1, the replacement spacecraft, was successfully launched into Earth orbit. In fact, it was so successful that it went from a low point of a little over 100 miles to a high point of 2,500 miles. And in such an incredible elliptical orbit, like its predecessor, Explorer 1, which von Braun had been able to successfully launch after Vanguard blew up, <clears throat> um, these two spacecraft, actually three spacecraft, because Vanguard 2 also was launched into that same very elliptical orbit, these three spacecraft are still up there, hearkening uh, back to the earliest days of the American space program. Now, why were they so immortal in space? Why did they last? I mean, their radios fell silent um, after the batteries died in Vanguard 1. In, I think, about 20 days, it was powered only by solar cells, which had been created specifically to be put into space on this first spacecraft. And those solar cells continue to power Vanguard 1's telemetry, its radios, for seven years. They didn't uh, kind of quit uh, and call it quits until, I think, 1964. It's still up there, and you can track it optically, and you can get a lot of information about geodesy, the shape of the Earth, and you know various gravitational interactions, and the mass guns beneath the surface of the planet, and where mountain ridges are, and planes, and gravity fields and lumpiness and all that good stuff by optically tracking it. And of course, there are some am amateurs who are doing that using the little telescope and satellite predicts. You point your telescope at a certain place and time and bingo, there is Vanguard. Why is it in such an incredibly long-lived orbit? Well, that's going to be the subject of another show because that has to do with hyperdimensional physics and the torsion field and how gravity really operates as opposed to the Newtonian approximations that uh, we've been we've been living with for well since the dawn of the space age, there's actually some secrets to traveling in space that are not generally written about in the textbooks. Which is the appropriate segue to go to my second note tonight. If you go to the other side of um, midnight.com, that's our homepage. Click on tonight's graphic for Dr. Reich. That will take you to the guest page. Scroll down, and under my items, you'll see the Vanguard uh, story. And then under that, a really strange story that came out earlier this week. It seems like our president wants to put Marines in space. He actually gave a speech uh, on Tuesday uh, morning at Miramar not far from Camp Pendleton, there outside of San Diego. And in that speech to a packed hall of Marines, U.S. Marines, he, he raised the idea of war in space is kind of inevitable. It's another war-fighting you know, terrain, mixing our metaphors. And then he floated the idea of creating a space force to fight wars in space. Now, this, of course, as everything else that President Trump has done, is about 180 degrees from standard U.S. policy going back to the signing in 1967 of the U.N. Treaty, which kind of forbids war in space and weapons and weapons of mass destruction and all that good stuff. So I'm going to, in the next uh, week or two, maybe a couple, it depends on, on logistics, getting hold of this person. I'm going to try to have someone on who has spent her career 
fighting against what President Trump so casually um, suggested uh, just a few days ago. And we will go into the pros and cons and why internationally for the last 60 years, since since Vanguard, since since uh, Sputnik, since since Explorer, since the dawn of the space age, space has been supposed to be a peaceful domain. Well, if our president has his way, apparently uh, not anymore. And of course, we have to uh, we have to um, examine the possibility that maybe things have changed. Maybe the president was leaking something between the lines which has to do with uh, other nations, other powers, other enemies. I mean, as I said on an earlier show I did this week on this subject, um, okay, so the president wants us to put a space force into space. Who's the enemy? I mean, if it's not the Russians or the Chinese, and I don't see them proposing the idea of you know, space marines, then who's out there that maybe we're supposed to be aware of, afraid of. We're going to leave it on that note, and we will come back to that um, later, because as I said, I'm working to get this very special guest who can address all these issues and a lot more. But that's for another night, another side of midnight. The final story I want to bring to your attention before we turn to James. Stephen Hawking died this week, age 76, too soon. I mean, he lived... 50 plus years beyond his his expected age, you know, when he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease back in the 1960s. I think back in 1963 was the first time he had a medical diagnosis that his falling downstairs and being, you know, having finding it difficult to talk and things like that actually had a systemic problem, which got worse and worse and the good news is we had him for extraordinary amounts of time beyond where normally people with this disease live. They live years, maybe a decade. He lived 50 plus years beyond when he should have died. And that is an extraordinary contribution to mankind. And if you go to my third item, you'll click on the Guardian story, which gives a um, very important overview of Stephen Hawking's life, his career, and some of his most remarkable discoveries, including the idea which feeds directly into the whole hyperdimensional concept, because way back in the uh, 70s, Hawking proposed that when a black hole swallows stuff, the information that stuff carries, when it's re-emitted as black body radiation, per Hawking's own equations, that information is lost which would make the first break in scientific history where something in the universe was neither created nor destroyed, but only modified, only transformed. Hawking said in the 70s, nope, information going down a black hole is literally destroyed, which was stunning to the world astronomical and uh, physics communities. Well, many, many years later, because everybody else totally disagreed with it. No, 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 you cannot destroy information. Hawking revised his calculations and provided just a couple, three years before his death, you know, earlier this, this, this week, provided calculations indicating that maybe he had been in error in his first paper on this subject. And in fact, black holes don't destroy information. 
they kind of store it. And at that point, things get very weird because it's like, how can you get at it? How can the universe know it's still there? Isn't it, if it's in a black hole be beneath the event horizon, um, isn't it in a place where it cannot ever leak out? In other words, all these questions are raised, and you will have to go to Hawking to see what partial solutions he had been able to provide before his, um, I'm going to say it, untimely death, because it's like you kind of expect Stephen to be around to answer these crucial questions as we enter into a stunning new age where, where almost anything can happen. So on that note, let me go to my guest tonight, because I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. James DeMeo is a Ph.D., formerly studied Earth, Atmospheric, and Environmental Sciences at Florida International University. I think that's not far from where that walkway collapsed a couple of days ago. And then at the University of Kansas, where James earned his Ph.D. in 1986. At KU, he openly undertook the first graduate-level natural scientific research, specifically focusing on William Reich controversial discoveries and subjected those ideas to rigorous testing with positive verification of Reich's original publications and findings. DeMeo subsequently undertook drought-related field research in the arid American Southwest, kind of where I'm hanging out tonight in the land of enchantment, and then in Egypt, Israel, Sub-Saharan Eritrea, and, and, and Namibia. I, I can't talk tonight either. His work on Sarahasia, it's an interesting term, Sarahasia, we'll talk about that, Consult, cons, constituted, I'll get this right, the most ambitious goal cross-cultural research study to date on the subject of human behavior, family, and sexual life around the world. His published works include dozens of articles and compendiums, as well as several books, including Sarah Asia, The Oregon Accumulator Handbook, and In Defense of William Reich. He is, was editor of On William Reich, and or, 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 or uh, I'll do this correctly, or Organami and Heretics Notebook, and the journal Pulse of the Planet. And I could go on, but I'll probably mangle the rest of it, so you can go to the other side of Midnight on the guest page and scroll down, and there is William's complete bio, and with that very mangled introduction, James, welcome to the other side of midnight. Thank you, Richard. Good evening. Good evening. Well, I have wanted to have this conversation for so long. First of all, let me go back to your bio. I mean, it seems to me you're kind of a science guy, an environmental guy, a geophysics guy. How the hell did you ever get into William Wilhelm Reich? Well, uh... I read uh, a book called Selected Writings by Wilhelm Reich. Wilhelm Reich is uh, the German pronunciation, which I've sort of gotten addicted to. But his book, Selected Writings, had, a, as, as the title indicates, a selection of his research papers and book chapters. And it just blew me away. Uh, and I, I had my feeling at the time was this, this is really powerful stuff if it's true then it's going to change the world in a, in a better way. And if it's not true, then I, I want to find out. So uh, I began uh, studying him while I was working towards my degrees in the university. I sort of made that my pet project and did it all on the side and 
ran experiments and bugged my professors for laboratory space and borrowing of instruments and so on. And it, it eventually became the, the major focus of my, my research. So uh, that's how it got started. And I've been doing that ever since, uh, uh, well, I, I graduated with my bachelor's degree in, in uh, oh, what was the year? That was about 1976. So uh, it's been about 40 years of work, uh, focused work on this subject of organomy, uh, which is the science of the life energy, as Reich discovered, the mm. energy. And uh, it, it really is earth-shaking material. That's, that's all I can tell you. And, you know, they burned his books on two continents. He was, uh, um, he was hated by the scientific and the medical establishment, both in Europe and in the United States, with the exception of uh, groups of, of forward thinking and, and uh, contactful uh, doctors and, and professors and so on. Uh, and, you know, they, they don't burn the books of junk science, of, of ordinary kind of nonsense. You want that, you can get plenty of that in Scientific American or <laughs> some of the other major mainstream journals that forbid criticism. Nature Magazine, Science Magazine, they have, over my lifetime, gone from being reasonably good scientific um, journals into um, very dogmatic. They, they openly express paper, they openly express, we're gonna censor this particular scientist because his arguments are too good and every time we think we've cornered him to shut him up, he comes up with a, a new finding or something. Wait, wait, wait. Where, where uh, have they done that? I, James, I never read that. Well, uh, I'll give you an example with Jacques Benveniste, the man who did the memory of water research. Okay, homeopathy. Nature Magazine, uh, put up all kinds of obstacles to his uh, to his research, uh, publishing it, and required him to get outside and independent verifications by independent labs, which he did. And so finally, they published his paper. But alongside of it was a paper by the Skeptic Club people, saying sometimes it pays to publish a, an impossible result. And uh, he was he lost his standing at the French uh, laboratories, uh, national laboratory where he was employed, and um, eventually died died of a heart attack. Holy and, uh, cow! Another another case would be Peter Duesberg of UC Berkeley, professor of cell biology. He was the one who was constantly criticizing HIV theory of AIDS. He says that HIV is a, a harmless passenger virus, and that this is an environmentally induced drug-induced uh, disorder that destroys the immune system. So, um, you know, it isn't just Reich, but Reich is the only one I know of who, uh, who had his books burned by the federal government uh, with the approval of every court all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay, obviously people are now saying, what in the world did this guy do? So let's reel back the clock, go back to the very beginning. Who was Wilhelm Reich? And why had he become, has he become almost the most hated guy, if not scientist, in, 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 in world history? Well, hated and, and greatly misunderstood and lied about quite a bit. He was originally a, um, a student of Sigmund Freud, one of the early psychoanalysts. So he was European? He was a European, uh, yeah. He was, uh, this was in Vienna where uh, he was one of the many refugees after World War I, and he took a degree from the University of Vienna in medicine, 
and uh, he studied with Freud as a uh, Freud was his mentor. And so he was German, but he had migrated to Austria and got a, a degree at what age? Twenties. Well, actually, he was he was born in what is today Ukraine oh. of German heritage parents. So he had a, a heritage of Germ Germanic uh, roots, uh, but in what what is today Ukraine was back then part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Mm -hmm. So. Um, he wound up uh, in Vienna and was studying medicine. Uh, being, uh, he became a psychoanalyst at a very early age because Freud was so deeply impressed with him, and he was. He so was he was a protege of, of, of Freud. That's right, and he was uh, he was leading some of the uh, teaching seminars for the uh, younger analysts, and uh, was highly respected. His publications fill the psychoanalytic journals of, of those days. He was um, being groomed, I th as many people think, for a very high position in the psychoanalytic society. And then he, he began to question some of what Freud was, was uh, arguing for. He questioned the Freudian death instinct. And he, what, what, uh, he what, 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 what years did this take place in? Oh, gosh. This was in the, uh, the 1920s. Ah, so between the wars. Uh, between the wars. That's correct. And, uh, and Freud was a god, so you didn't question God. Well, he was, he was uh, I, I don't know how, the, if they viewed him as that in, in the psychoanalytic world, though, he was the top guy. And you don't challenge the top guy in such a tight-knit organization like that. Uh, but Reich did. He, he said the death instinct was, didn't, didn't exist. And he, uh, hang on, he hang uh, on, had the hang belief on. that... We, we need to explain these things for generations that oh, okay. have no idea what we're going to be talking about. What is the well, death, death instinct? In, death in, yeah, death instinct is uh, where there's a primary urge for, for destruction and violence. And uh, this was Freud's view after looking at the, the chaos and destruction of World War I. And Reich, Reich didn't believe that. He, he believed that the, the deep inner part of human beings was, was good and decent and rational, but somehow we, we went off the rails due to trauma, infant trauma, and the, the way babies were raised with cruelty and so on, beatings of children and... Uh, and, uh, so he was so a forerunner in the eye that, that ab abused kids become abusers later in life. Yes, very much. He was one of the very first people to articulate that view. My God, that is so uh, current right now. Yeah, it, it's very current. And Reich is appreciated in some circles on that, but uh, generally not, not in the mainstream publications. But... Uh, there were other things. He changed the analytical practice, uh, for example, instead of just, uh, you know, the joke is that the psychoanalyst is, is sitting behind the patient and the patient is lying on the couch talking away in free association. And the patient turns around to the analyst because he's been quiet for so long and finds that he's sleeping. <laughs> um, so Reich, Reich didn't like that free association business. He, he, he turned around and put his chair where he could look the patient in the eye and look at them and see how they were breathing and see how, how they were emoting. And his, Reich's view was that uh, mental talking was subordinate to the deeper emotions. Oh, so he was looking for body language cues. He, he was looking for body language, for, for people's facial expressions, uh, 
and uh, and what he what he found is that if you could get people to breathe really deep, uh, a lot of a lot of their bottled up emotion would come out. They would cry, they would get angry, uh, and so he would he learned to uh, sort of provoke the patient into releasing bottled up energy in the therapy room. And after the emotional discharge, they felt better, and a lot of they they uh, they looked brighter in the eyes. They could move better. They could breathe deeper spontaneously. So he went from that into uh, analyzing people's sexual lives, which was in those days and in modern days as well. Uh, people are suffering from a great deal of sexual ungratification, a lot of frustration, a lot of sexual misery so he began counseling on that as well on so he was he was in in vienna when he did all this right this was all in vienna and uh so he he began doing a lot of things that was outside of the analytical therapy room and he he uh he you know in those days you got to realize that uh the puritanical nature of the of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, oh my God. or the re, the residues of it uh, after World War One, uh, was very strict, and uh, you you couldn't legally you would be breaking the law to uh, to offer contraceptives, for example. Uh, he looked at he looked at some of the misery of people in the society, and one of the examples he wrote about was a woman who had about six kids, and she, the husband had left, and she's out with two or three jobs and the kids are running loose in the street. And he says, this woman doesn't need psychoanalytic therapy. She needs economic help. You know, she needs contraception so she doesn't have additional kids. Um, so he was arguing that this, there was a social uh, phenomenon that was leading to people's uh, emotional misery and uh, and began to try and work on that, which was, you know, all of this is way, way beyond traditional psychoanalytic therapy. And I, I'm summarizing quite a lot here. Well, he but, seems to uh, have been at the cutting edge in, in kind of creating what we would think of now as modern psychotherapy. Modern psychotherapy. In fact, he is considered to be the father of the body-oriented psychotherapies. All these people who talk about... Uh, crying or punching on a couch or getting out bottled up emotion. Reich was the granddaddy uh, who got all that sort of approach going. He was the first one to develop it. My God, was he actually part of the primal scream school? Well, primal scream was something that developed much later by Arthur Yanov and is not really the same thing. I mean, there's a lot of knockoffs from Reich's emotional release uh, therapy, which uh, I don't think are half as good as the original stuff that, wor that Reich worked out. So there's, there's something called Reichian therapy or orgone therapy, as he later called it, uh, because he moved beyond the idea of emotions as some kind of neurochemical reaction in the brains. He, he believed that the emotions were an expression of energy. So let me, let me get energy. one thing clear. Uh, to, to be a psychotherapist, he had to have medical training. He had to have basically an MD, right? Well, uh, in those days, yeah, I would, there wasn't any real psychotherapy. There was only psychiatry and psychoanalysis. And Freud adopted the policy that he would only train uh, psychiatrists. So uh, you're correct, yes. Okay. So he comes at this with a full medical background in 
the human organism, the physics and the biology of, of being human, right? That's correct. That's and, correct. And then That's he integrated that really well into his therapy approaches. I mean, where did the idea ever come off that a psychiatrist or a therapist would sit so they couldn't see the patient, so they couldn't see the reactions that Reich obviously knew had to be part of the big picture? Well, uh, presumably Freud thought that by being remote, the psychoanalyst would not make the patient feel uh, inhibited so that the patient could free associate without uh, just looking at a wall or something. Hmm. Or was he looking to be the dispassionate observer? You know, science, you know, objectivity, that kind of thing? Probably, but I'm not a psychoanalyst to give you that depth uh, to answer that kind of a question. (laughs) So, but I've studied Reich, and I I do know this different. I've actually gone through this orgone therapy myself as a young man, and it was very, very liberating. I had all kinds of uh, contractions in my body from uh, from uh, some traumatic uh, things I in my own childhood, and and it it was very liberating. Hmm. I'll tell you what there, we're we're at the bottom of the hour, James. This is important, crucial background, because we're going to get into the stuff that really got Wilhelm Reich into hot water in the next half hour. So kind of hold it there. My guest this morning is Dr. James DeMeo, and we're talking about a most extraordinary researcher, practitioner, uh, whatever you want to use as a term. Uh, And we'll be getting back because this is going to go places you guys are not going to expect. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Music in the background, we're going to be playing music all evening from an old friend of mine um, and from Tia's, Nick Skoros. Didn't want to tell him, didn't want to give him a heads up. This is a surprise. Nick, welcome to your musical life. You're on the other side of midnight, as I said. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that member used to chat about the show during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question that will be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live, and this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests, And I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. 
You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.